Well, good morning, everyone. How are you doing this morning? You know, whenever I listen to the news and I read the newspaper, uh, uh, I'm always hearing about animosity between schools and Christians. And, and here we have an opportunity along North Avenue to work with uh, two of the most under-resourced uh, schools in DuPage County. And when was the last time you heard of a school district asking a church to help? Uh, it's, it doesn't happen very often. And so we're, we have this incredible opportunity to make a difference in the lives of these students and families. And uh, we've been talking about it uh, for a while now. We've been doing a few things, but now is our opportunity to do uh, some really significant things. So we need your help. Uh, we need feet and uh, we need feet and hands, and so I hope you guys can be part of of what's happening over there. Uh, I'm pretty excited about it. So you're going to hear more about it as we move forward. So why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to First uh, Peter chapter five, New Testament, First Peter five. Uh, as most of you know, and just in case you don't, we're in a series called Aliens. It's a study of this uh, letter the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians in the early church, telling them that because of their faith in Jesus. Because of their reverence for God, because of their desire to obey God, uh, they were going to be sometimes misunderstood by the culture. They were going to be viewed as a weird, alien people. And today we come to the end of the letter. And uh, considering we've spent 22 works, uh, weeks working through it, um, you may be thankful that we're at the end of the letter. I don't know. Um, I, I certainly can't summarize everything we've learned, and I'm sure you don't want me to. But suffice it to say, from his opening statement, it, it's clear that Peter was writing to help fellow Christians understand who we are in Christ and how the grace of God transforms us from the inside out with our lives displaying that transformation uh, publicly, privately, individually, and corporately. Uh, Peter's pretty upfront about the fact that the world in which we live is a sinfully imperfect and broken place, a place where bad things happen to good people, a place where we can be persecuted for what we believe, a place where pain and suffering eventually touch all of our lives with no exceptions. Last week we saw Peter uh, warn us that along with everything else, we have an evil enemy who's out to destroy us through the lies of temptation and accusation. Uh, he's a spiritual predator who wants nothing more than to devour us whole. And if you missed last week, you need to go online and listen because it's an important uh, reality we need to face. And so with all of that being true, you know, one might view Peter's final message to the church a bit odd because in the last four verses of his letter, he essentially tells his readers and tells us that despite all the, dif uh, the difficulties that we face, the challenges, the, uh, the pain, the persecution, the disappointments, the spiritual attacks, despite the suffering, uh, as Christians, we're to remain a people of hope. And I'm thinking, really? How does that work? Uh, how can that be true for us? And so I want to look with you, uh, with, uh, look at you, look with you at what Peter has to say before we do. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, we're grateful again for the opportunity to uh, uh, be here together um, this morning, to uh, to sing your praises, to humble ourselves before your word, before you, our God, before one another, uh, recognizing our brokenness, uh, recognizing our need for your grace in our lives every day. And I ask, Lord, that you would um, be so kind as to remove any distractions uh, that might keep us this morning from hearing your truth and responding. We may we have a great sense of your presence here. Uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope, it's what distinguishes us from animals. 
Uh, even Charles Darwin, for all his, all his emphasis on the similarities between animals and humans, believed that. He wrote, as human beings, if we have no hope, we despair. Animals don't do that. Animals don't despair. They have no abstract concept of anxiety, no ability to worry because they have no abstract concept of the future and therefore no hope. However, we as human beings can reason in the abstract. We have the capacity to be consciously aware of our fear, of our anxiety. We live with a sense of the future. We are beings in search of reality, and therefore we look beyond ourselves for that which is yet to come. In short, we experience hope. Uh, as the well-known Swiss theologian Emil Brunner once said, what oxygen is to the lungs, such is hope to the meaning of life. But what is hope exactly? For many people today, uh, hope is simply wishing for something to happen with no certainty that it will. It's mostly about convenience, you know. Uh, I hope it won't rain later this afternoon. I hope, I hope my, ho- my house sells this week. I hope my hair grows back. You know, those kind of, those kind of things. It's, um, it's sort of a lower level hope, uh, not existential in nature. But the biblical idea of, of hope is very different because in Scripture, hope is an indication of certainty. It's a strong and confident expectation that something will happen. It's high-level hope, hope that provides a unique capacity to endure when tested by suffering. And it seems to me that, you know, in the midst of this confusing and chaotic world of ours, we all need that kind of hope, the kind that pulls us through uh, tough times, uh, a sure and confident expectation of the future uh, that brings us meaning and helps us survive today and live for tomorrow. And see, that is, that's one of the greatest aspects of Christianity. It's one of the things that sets it apart from other world religions because it's all about hope. It's about a confident expectation regarding our future. Now, you've heard me say this many times before, but it's important we review this and we recognize this, that when you break them all down, other religions are mostly about fear. They tell you that life is hard, but what comes next could be worse if there is anything next. Because either there's no life after death, or you may get assimilated into a great consciousness, or you might get reincarnated as a cow, or a bug, or a dog, or perhaps spend eternity being punished for life's mistakes that you just weren't good enough to overcome. Other religions are works-oriented. It's all about performance. You know, if you try hard enough, if you're good enough, then maybe, just maybe, you'll avoid punishment and get some kind of eternal reward. But there are no guarantees. You know, it all depends on what you do and how well you do it. And so fear and anxiety and disappointment enter the picture because down deep inside, most of us realize we're just not that good. And then we experience guilt because we feel bad about not being that good. Punishment, work, fear, anxiety, insecurity, and guilt are all part of world religion, except for Christianity. And understand, while biblical Christianity affirms that God holds us responsible for our actions, at its very core, it's not about punishment. It's about forgiveness. It's not about works. It's about grace. It's not about guilt. It's about peace. It's not about fear and uncertainty. It's about hope and confident expectation. As Christians, hope is is part of who we are. Because as followers of Jesus, God has promised to see us through the worst this world uh, throws at us. He graciously forgives our sin and grants eternal life. He removes our guilt and assures us the best is yet to come. Now, as you can imagine, this was a particularly important teaching for first century Christians who were few in number and were constantly threatened uh, with persecution and suffering. 
yet their confidence in God was quite remarkable uh, when their enemies persecuted them, even murdered them, uh, murdered them because of what they believed. Those same enemies uh, were astounded to, 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 to watch these Christians face death with true faith and hope. Martyrdom uh, became an unexpected avenue of church growth. The crazy irony was, as, as the pagan world witnessed the dying hope of these believers, greater and greater numbers uh, of people embraced Christianity. Men and women put their faith in this Jesus because they too wanted this kind of hope. So when you stop and think about it, uh, it's no wonder that Peter finishes his letter to the church with words of hope. And he says this beginning in verse 10 of chapter 5. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends uh, you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, those of you paying close attention are going to say, hold on a second, Ray. You know, Peter doesn't mention the word hope here in this text. He uses it else, elsewhere in the letter, but not here. And you're right, that's true. But if we listen carefully to what he's saying, it's obvious, at least to me, that hope is what he's talking about. In fact, in verses 10 through 11, Peter essentially explains the basis of our hope. See, in terms of everyday life, for many people, circumstance is the basis for hope. We hope we'll beat a disease because a new, a new kind of treatment has been developed. We hope we'll get a job because of a growing economy. We hope uh, we'll win a war because of military superiority. We hope we'll solve our, our family problems uh, by way of good counseling. And don't misunderstand. I mean, there's nothing wrong with circumstantial hope. It's good when circumstances are positive, but circumstances aren't always positive, are they? Sometimes the prognosis is poor because there is no treatment. Sometimes finances are bad. There's no bull market. Sometimes the prospects of victory are grim because of unexpected battle conditions. Sometimes the future seems bleak because our circumstances stink. Then what? In terms of the future, secularism bases its hope in humanity. If you read the philosophers and thinkers of the late 19th and 20th centuries, many of them believed, and many still do today, uh, they believed in the innate goodness of, of man and are absolutely convinced that all social ills and evils are the result of poor education uh, and poor socialization. And so they base their, their hope for the future in better education uh, government policies, economics, genetic potential, and the evolutionary process. Although, ultimately, atheistic evolution offers no true hope, no meaning, no purpose in our existence. Uh, the famous writer and thinker H.G. Wells was one of these secularists, or modernists, if you will, who early on in his life believed in the perfectibility and in the, in the internal goodness of, of mankind, but by the end of his life, he was so disappointed in what he saw, he was so disillusioned by it all, in his last book entitled Mind at the End of Its Tether, wrote, Homo sapiens, as he is wont to call himself, is finished. What happened? Unfortunately, like many other secularists today, H.G. Wells made the goodness of humanity his supreme hope. And when you do that, you eventually get let down, and the mind comes to the end of its tether. And you're disillusioned. 
And in the secular view of things, suffering always wins. In fact, religion does a very similar thing. While acknowledging the reality of a superior being, a supreme being, any hope for a future in you know, heaven or nirvana or paradise uh, comes by way of hope in humanity, hope in ourselves, hope in human achievement. You know, we can prove ourselves to God, our worthiness to God, earn our way, which in the end also leads to disappointment and disillusionment. But notice what the Apostle Peter says here. He says, the basis of our hope is what? Really is who? The God of all grace. The basis of our hope is the God of all grace. Here's my Reiki summary of that. As Christians, our hope is not based on good luck, wishful thinking, positive predictions, pleasant circumstances, social engineering, uh, and or the goodness of humanity. Christian hope is based on our loving and gracious God. We believe he's in charge. We believe he doesn't change. We believe he's all-powerful. We believe he has lovingly uh, obligated himself to us as sons and daughters, adopted sons and daughters, and, and is therefore personally engaged in our lives and in our future. Peter says God himself graciously will do what needs to be done in your life and mine. And maybe, you know, maybe this is just something that only genuine Christians can, can grasp and understand because for others... It, it perhaps sounds like religious fantasy, you know, self-delusion. But because of what we believe about God, because of the objective historical reality of Jesus, in the worst of circumstances, we remain convinced that God can turn the impossible into the possible, the worst into the best, even death into life. Our hope derives its enduring and living quality out of the accomplishment of God in Jesus. Peter says, he is the God of all grace. The Greek term that's used here for grace refers to good gifts. In other words, he's saying God is determined to give us through Jesus all the goodness, all the goodness we need. He's determined that our lives will count for something and that everything will end up good and right in the end. As Christians, we also believe God has called us to share in his greatness. Peter writes, he says, this God of all grace has what? Has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. In other words, God has committed and promised that all of the success in the universe will be displayed in and through his son. He will, he will eternally glorify himself. In other words, make himself look good through Jesus. And God has invited us to share in that, in that glory. Think of it this way. When politicians run for the highest offices in government, they need help to win. They need help to get the job done. Uh, and when the majority party takes over in Congress or, or a new president is elected to the White House, a lot of things change. You know, they do. The best offices in the Capitol uh, go to the leaders in the majority. The committee chairs uh, go to the majority. Why? Because whoever wins determines visibility, power, vision, leadership. It's a big deal. And those who supported the winner, you know, are those who get the appointed key positions. It's like the candidate says to his or her supporters, you know, stick with me through, through the election and you'll, get, you'll reap a reward. You'll, you'll share with me in the benefits of victory. God is saying a very similar thing to us, only on a much larger, uh, on, a, on an eternal scale. He's saying, believe in me, trust me, follow me, stick with me, and you'll be rewarded. You will share in the eternal glory of Christ. And here's the thing, you know, we're not talking about an election where the results are uncertain. The end isn't up for grabs. In God's case, ultimate victory, ultimate victory will be his. And so we have confidence that we're going to win with him. And we expect to share with Jesus in glory. God's very best is our guaranteed future. But understand, our hope is not in what will happen. See, our hope is in the God of grace who will make it happen. 
And that's why the outcome of hope is sure. Back in chapter 1, remember Peter wrote this. He said, In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. In other words, in Christ, the eternal outcome of our hope is going to be great. However, however, Peter also points out that the temporary outcome of our hope and faith in Jesus may not be so great. Initially, this life we know it may involve and will involve suffering of some sort, which is why Peter says, you know, after you've suffered a little while, God will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Listen, as hard as it is for us to accept, the fact is scripture teaches that some degree of suffering is a normal part of the Christian experience. I think most of us in the room would agree that life is often hard. We think of relationship problems. We think of personal unhappiness, unpaid bills, job loss, failed classes, health issues, and all the other challenges and disappointments and discomforts of life. And we all have stories of, of uh, you know, personal pain and disappointment. On the other hand, I mean, let's be honest about it, our lives are much easier and more prosperous than most people in our world. Well over half of the earth's 7 billion people are poor, barely surviving on less than $2 a day. Most of them don't have cars, houses, education, access to health care, spring breaks, vacation days. Many don't have food or even clean water to drink, things that we take for granted every day. And yet by and large, as Americans, we are no, notoriously ungrateful for and whiny about many of the things that the world around us considers luxuries. So the question is, you know, do we, in our context, suffer or don't we? And the answer is yes, we suffer, because even in the best of circumstances, life is not easy. And so we should not be ungrateful for the good things we have, neither should we minimize the reality of the pain we experience. And Peter is simply saying, look, whatever the suffering, to whatever degree you experience it, he says, after a little while, God will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. God always follows loss with restoration. He always follows weakness with strength, anguish with relief, failure with success. Knowing that, uh, assures us that he will see us through our present difficulty and favor us with a better next chapter to our life story. He invites us to believe that, to believe in him and expect the best. In short, we trust God to get us through today and give us a better tomorrow. And Peter says, he says, to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but I think Peter's done a pretty good job affirming that the basis of Christian hope is God himself, the God of grace, and the outcome of hope is eternal glory in Christ. And so, you know, if it were me writing, I'd, I'd end the letter right here, call it a day. But not Peter. He's got more to say. He keeps going. Why? Well, um, while Peter authored this letter, he didn't, he didn't actually put the words down on paper. Uh, as we know, Peter was a fisherman with little formal education, and this document was written in high-quality Greek, typical of the educated class in the Roman Empire. And so Peter wants his readers to know that he had help getting his thoughts recorded and clearly communicated. He had an assistant. So in verse 12, he says, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. 
She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son, Mark. And what's interesting to me is that here, even in the closing verses of the letter, in a way, Peter, Peter offers examples of hope. He mentions fellow believers who embodied some of the things that he's just been writing about. Silas was a great example of that. In case you're unfamiliar with him, Silas was a follower of Jesus who uh, had previously traveled and served with the Apostle Paul. In fact, uh, at one point, uh, those two guys suffered persecution together. They were attacked by an angry mob in the Greek city of Philippi. According to the book of Acts, this crowd joined in an attack against Paul and Silas and We're told that the magistrates in that city ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Uh, When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. And uh, if you remember the rest of the story, you know that as they sat there imprisoned, recovering from the violence and the abuse, Paul and Silas prayed out loud and sang worship tunes together, and everybody in the prison heard them. And around midnight... There was an earthquake that shook the place so badly that they were freed. And they ended up telling everyone there about Jesus, and the jailer and his family became Christians. I mean, Silas was an example of somebody who had suffered because of Jesus, but remained hopeful, continuing to serve God faithfully. Peter goes on to mention uh, she who is in Babylon as another example of Christian hope. And he's not referring to uh, an individual here. He uses the feminine pronoun she, Uh, along with the term Babylon, as sort of a coded reference for the church in the city of Rome, where he was was writing this letter from. Uh, Why the coded language? Well, uh, he used it for for his own safety and for the safety of fellow Christians with him, who found themselves, you know, in the very capital of the pagan empire, smack dab in, in the heart of persecution. And basically, Peter's saying, look, you guys in Asia Minor, hold on, you can do it. You can do it. If the Christians here in Rome, in in the center of Babylon itself, can stand firm, if they remain a people of hope, so can you. And then he mentions Mark. And as you may know, Mark was the author of the Gospel of Mark. He was a close friend of Peter's. In fact, most scholars believe Peter led Mark to faith in Jesus. And so Peter uses terms of endearment and refers to Mark as his son, uh, also as an example of hope and how to live by faith in difficult times. But here's the point. Even as he closes his letter, Peter is portraying hope uh, among Christians as the norm, not the exception. And so he expected all of us as followers of Jesus to be examples of hope to to the world around us, to the people around us. That's why he tells his readers to stand fast. Hope makes that possible. Stand fast, he says. And then finally, Peter encourages Uh, them to express their hope to one another. In verse 14, he ends by writing, he says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. See, Peter expected Christians to hang out together, to be in community with one another in good times and in bad times. And giving a friend a kiss on the cheek was a common form of greeting in the first century. It It was something that expressed love and commitment and solidarity. It's still a custom in many many nations today and many cultures, especially in Middle Eastern cultures. Uh, on my second visit to Jordan, uh, I, I met a guy who I had met in my previous journey there. And, and he comes up to me. We were in a, this, this, this school. And he comes up to me and he grabs me and he starts kissing me on the cheek. And the more kisses you get, the more important you are to the person. I, I don't know why I was so important, but I was getting a lot of kisses. And I'm thinking, what is happening around me? I, I like don't know what to do with my hands. You know, <laughs> I'm like, oh, 
you know, because it's a weird, it's a weird experience for Americans for, to have that happen. And, you know, we're much more standoffish. Um, coming in and getting kissed by a bunch of you every Sunday, uh, don't be offended. It would be a little weird and uncomfortable for me. Uh, I admit I'm not a big kissy guy. A good handshake, pack in the back, fist bump from a distance is going to be good enough. <laughs> it communicates quite a lot to me. But let's not, let's not miss the point. Let's not miss the point. Peter is saying that close community is critical to faith. That's what he's saying. Being together, doing life together in large groups, in small groups, you know, warmly greeting one another, encouraging one another, uh, affirms our common faith. It expresses our solidarity, our love and commitment to one another. Uh, it's an incentive for us to remain hopeful, realizing that we are not alone. You know, even in the midst of suffering, we, we're in this together. And that is helpful to know. So think about it. Peter opened his letter affirming the kind, this kind of living hope we have in and through Jesus. And then he ends the letter telling, uh, telling us to hold on to that hope no matter what. The basis of the hope we have is the grace of God, the God of grace. The outcome of the hope uh, of hope is sure. The examples of hope inspire us. Expressions of hope encourage us to keep going. Overall, Peter's closing message to the church is this, that no matter what happens in life, have hope. And by faith, hold on, stand firm, stand firm together for the best is yet to come. He writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Peter says, Know this, God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while, will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To Him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, I want to thank you today for the words of the Apostle Peter, who, who himself understood um, what pain is about. He, he suffered in his life, his relationships, um, ultimately giving his life for Jesus. We're grateful that you've preserved his words and thoughts and ideas for us today, and it's amazing to me how Although the world has changed in 2,000 years, in so many respects it hasn't, because it's still a broken place with imperfect, sinful people trying to get along together, trying to make our way through this thing called life. And because of our brokenness, there is suffering. It's a reality of the human experience. And as Christians, we are not immune to it. And I, I pray, Lord, that you would help us grasp that reality and not only understand it, but that you would give us hope in the midst of it, no matter what it is we're going through, no matter the pain, no matter the suffering, the challenges, the disappointments. May we, may we place our hope in you, the God of all grace. May we wake up every morning recognizing that we are in need of your grace and that grace is poured out to us through our faith in Jesus. May we be reminded of that throughout the day as we face challenges. May we embrace Jesus more firmly and uh, experience His grace more fully. And may all of that um, give us hope to make it through and hope for the future. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.